Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I'm a former assistant director and your host. In honor of Veterans Day, this week's episode is a little different. Longtime listeners are aware that before I moved to Hollywood, I served five years in the Air Force as a combat camera officer. My first assignment out of college was at Vandenberg Air Force Base, California, 1993 to 96. And my guests today all served with me there. Let's go around the table. For our listeners at home, each of you, please share how long you served in the Air Force the rank at which you retired or separated, and then what you did when we were at Vandenberg. First, Jim Staten. Oh, I had uh, 22 years in the Air Force. Um, I was a master sergeant when I retired um, from Vandenberg, and I was a photojournalist and superintendent of uh, motion media. Well, Jim, it's great to see you here again. Let's uh, keep going from there. Bruce Ditko, you're up next. Uh, yeah, I retired as a master sergeant at Vandenberg, just like Jim. Uh, did 26 years. Uh, I had a real cobbled together career there. I was there forever, uh, which is uh, unheard of in the Air Force to stay at a place so long. I was there just over 18 years. I uh, started out in the motion picture lab, uh, running the wet side of that, um, kind of graduated over into the still side. Uh, from there, got into the whole flying arena of uh, aerial photography, um, deployed a lot, and had a blast. And uh, they practically had to kick me out, so. That's how much fun I was having. <laughs> now I live in South Dakota, and I'm probably the only guy on this panel that does nothing in the uh, visual communication field. So you guys might have to bring me up to speed with everything. I heard it's digital now. Is that, is that for real? <laughs> All, right. All right, Bruce, we'll come back around on that. Let me introduce the rest of the folks we've got here. Uh, Fred Johnson, you're up. Hey, uh, Frederick Johnson. I served for uh, just over seven years, about seven and a half years at Vandenberg um, with these guys. Uh, I was a senior airman when I left and I left and went to Silicon Valley and sort of did the whole gold rush chasing pixels thing up here. I'm still up here. And um, yeah, I was a photographer when I was in. Jim Staten was uh, was a mentor, and you know, the mean master sergeant. <laughs> so, <laughs> he wasn't mean. He's a crusty old teddy bear. <laughs> I'll, I'll second that. Well, we're pretty well represented on the Phil. Um, we're pretty well represented on the photo side, but uh, Al Pedroza, tell us what uh, you were doing. Uh, Albert Pedroza, <clears throat> I served a total of eleven years. Uh, one extra year. I was supposed to do 10, but served one extra year after 9-11, uh, after stop loss. Um, when I was at Vandenberg, I left there as a senior airman to go on to um, Syracuse University to participate in the military motion media studies program. Was the aerial videographer there. All right. Well, guys, I think uh, really glad you guys are all here today. Very excited about uh, catching up with all of you. It's been a really long time since we've done anything like this. Let's start to put some context for our civilian audience about combat camera itself. Now, we're not going to go deep into the history. For those who are curious about um, Air Force combat camera, I'd encourage you to go to a website that one of the squadrons has put together. It's at usafcombatcamera.org and you backslash history backslash, they talk a lot about how photography came together in the military. So we're not gonna go deep on that, but let's let people understand a little bit about how it fit together for us and what we were doing in the larger picture of uh, wartime photography. Jim, you could probably kick us off because you were probably there when it started. Oh yeah. I, uh... 
I can remember I had, I had, I was in I was in England running a combat camera unit out of uh, Alkenberry, and uh, I got the assignment for Vandenberg, and so I immediately called uh, to find out what kind of job I was going to. I had actually Vandenberg had been my first assignment, so I understood the the mission of the unit, but I was on my retirement assignment and was really looking for somewhere to kick back. And Fred assured me that they didn't really do much, but take pictures of launches and, and hang out a lot. So I said, I'm on my way. <laughs> and of course, the, the minute, the minute that, uh, that I hit the ground, uh, Haiti took off. Or was it Haiti? Yeah. Yeah, it was Haiti. Yeah. And uh, we immediately went into the combat camera mode with uh, setting up digital imaging uh, transmissions and downrange communications were an issue keeping track of our people um, that were forward-based. It was the first time that I had actually experienced things at that level. So it wasn't, wasn't kicking back. Um, we began uh, really pushing forward, uh, trying to display the technology and, and capture images and move them around via digital rather than uh, processing the film. You know, Jim, we're going to dive into that. I want to, I want to take a step back and uh, just in terms of uh, combat camera, what we did, sometimes it, it, people who aren't familiar with it, I usually say that basically we were trained to provide audiovisual support in threat environments. So that, that, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that uh, you know, yes, expert videographers, expert photographers, but also we were all uh, weapons trained. We all had our nuclear biological chemical training, basically yeah, to deploy oh yeah. into a, a threat environment, but basically people could be shooting at you and still do our job. That was kind of the, the goal of it uh, overall. When people ask you guys, do you tell that same kind of story or do you, do you, do you add some nuance to it or something different? But, but who's asking? I mean, we, I, I think we all take it for granted, but, What's key here is back in the day, back, you know, or I just think we all know what we mean by the day, back when we were in Avis and uh, we weren't underneath the comp squadron and we weren't underneath local wings. Uh, we, we were tasked, we were, our, the, the people that pushed our button to say, go do this, go to Haiti, the guys up at JCCC and the joint staff, it wasn't local public affairs offices. It was like from bosses on high which allowed all of us to run autonomously. Uh, they would say, we need a four-man team, two still, two video, one flyer each. We need them in Haiti. We need them in Panama. We need them wherever. BFE, usually. You're going to report right back to JCCC. You don't report to the local commanders. You don't report to the public affairs office. It was a higher mission. It was a, a global priority versus local. Yeah, I think so as well. Listener I man. always try to incorporate the historical part of capturing all this imagery. Because without it, we wouldn't be watching all these documentaries on Netflix or Prime about Vietnam or any other uh, war that we've been in without combat cap camera capturing that, that imagery. So I always like to incorporate the historical part of capturing that imagery. Yeah, Al, Al that's a really good point just about, uh, and again, the guys who are there taking pictures you know, filming, filming that so that can use it. But again, operating with the combat units. And to your point, Bruce, we were Air Force, but when you deployed, you were part of a joint group of everyone that was doing photography on the ground and working for the, the joint commander, as you said, not for a specific unit or, or that sort of organization. That was the idea. 
Yeah, exactly. Communication, right? I was going to say any kind of visual communication. What, what, to your earlier question, Rob, when when people, civilians, ask me, you know, what it, what I did, or what it, what it's like to do what we did in the in the military, I always paint the picture. I bring it down a couple of notches, and I paint the picture of a base, an Air Force base, because it's the only ones I have experience with, um, being kind of a small, self-contained city. You know, especially ones that are overseas. Um, but it's a small self-contained city and the visual communications squadron is the, the responsibility is to support that city in all their needs, whether it be forensic, investigative photography, sports, portraiture, you know, whatever kind of visual video, all this stuff. So we did all that stuff when it's not uh, time to suit up and go to battle like an Avenger, right? So you're doing that normal <laughs> civilian Clark Kent stuff during the normal nine to five. And then when the sirens go up, then it's time to, you know, do the A-team suit up and, you know, do the real thing. And I always painted the picture between the two. You know, you guys remember, there's always the photogra- the photographers, there's still photographic specialists, and then the, the photojournalists or the PJs, right? So... And one, the photographers always wanted to be the PJs. That was the that was the next level. Those were the cool guys that got to go everywhere. We got to stay back and do the the stuff and support the base until we were quote, quote ready to go go out. So that's kind of the picture for people that are you know that don't have experience with the military or with with these kinds of units. It's always like it's normal nine to five for the most part uh, during non stressful wartime situations, and then all bets are off and all units, you know, whatever clocks don't matter, <laughs> you know, when it, when it's time to go. Yeah. Good point. Uh, good point. Fred. It's sort of a, that again, preparing for that deployment mission. Uh, but then the rest of the time sort of being in-house audiovisual, whatever that meant for the unit where we were at. And so, and we'll talk more about that. It's probably a good time to point out that listeners, Many of you might not know that my name is Rob uh, because it's always skid for my Hollywood time. But uh, this group is uh, predates all of that. And I think uh, skid was a high school nickname that I had just about choked off through my time in the military before moving back to L.A. So uh, uh, we're, also <clears throat> L- we're also LT. That's right. Yeah. I was a lieutenant, as I mentioned before, Vandenberg was my first assignment in the military. And so I was the greenest of the group, I'm sure. Uh, we can we can bring up some of those stories. <laughs> we'll we'll yeah. get to them. We'll get to them. Let's so let's add a little more context to the picture of Vandenberg. Then so there's two main at the time that I'm coming in. You guys correct me if I'm misremembering. There's two main squadrons, one in Charleston, South Carolina, and one in down in L.A. at uh, Norton Air Force Base. Those are the main combat camera squadrons of their like they're fully. Right at that time, was that still true? Well, well, Norton Norton was the queen bee. Norton was our headquarters for for Avis and Combat Camera. We were we were at uh, detachments and uh, operating locations throughout the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, Charles Charleston was just one of them. But uh, once the consolidation of the units and the McPeak era, and no more Avis and no more this, no more that. That's kind of when Charleston came into their own. I see. As the as the lead for combat camera, because at all the operating locations, and Vandenberg was one of them. Uh, we immediately fell underneath the local comm squadron, and uh, Jim, I think you and I were in England when that actually happened, but. Yeah. Uh, Vandenberg was able to like hold on for a long time until the Manning level got to the point where they could no longer justify being their own squadron. 
if I remember correctly, you know how that went down? And then we fell underneath comp squadron. Yeah, I, I think it was it was a mandated thing though for Vandenberg. It was just they were one of the last to fold under. Um, yeah, they were their, their mission was so diversified. There were so many things that we actually had to support there. Yeah, yeah, and that's I, when Charleston stepped up and okay. uh, Hill, and then uh, I think Lackland. Uh, no, not was it Lackland? There was the, the video unit down there was yeah, was I put online, there, but, and then the fourth at, Mar at March was the reserve unit. And okay. That was it for like titled combat camera units. So when I showed up, we were already part of the uh, 30th communication squadron, as you mentioned, sort of right. organization reorganization under McPeak. Everything had to be on a local unit. And so there's a communication squadron in the 30th space wing, right? Yeah. Under yeah. space command and Vandenberg's right. mission, even before that, uh, was to launch rockets basically, because you could launch a rocket from there and do a, a polar orbit without going over occupied areas. I remember that being part of the justification. Right. And for those who don't know, Vandenberg in California is right at the bottom, that corner that crosses there about an hour south of San Luis Obispo, an hour north of Santa Barbara. Um, and you could launch rockets from there. But in doing so, there was a ton of motion picture equipment and and filming and just all related to the launches that we were all part of the same unit. Were they, were they, if you guys, if this happened before you got there, were they their separate unit? And then there was also combat camera or was it all sort of one unit before it went under the comm squadron? What do you it, was it, it was the 1369th. Yeah. Sorry, Jim, go ahead. It was one unit, but yeah. Yeah. It was 1369th and it was controlled out of Norton. Yeah. San Bernardino. So it was run out of Norton at the time until they broke it up and then tucked it under the comm squadron. Yeah, it was a it was a tenant unit under Norton. Again, like you said, they wanted to consolidate leadership and one wing, one boss, one kind of uh, one point of contact on each base. They didn't like tenant units any longer. And we weren't the only ones that got snapped up like that. Uh, comm squadron, weather squadron, a lot of the guys uh, that were tenant units found themselves underneath the local wing who they had tried very hard over the years to make enemies of. So overnight you had you found yourself in bed with them and it's like, wow, okay, this is going to be fun. I think another significant part of that was even though the, the daily mission of the audiovisual services there was to support space and missile launching, which are two distinct things. The focus that we picked up was that we were more inclined to support space command requirements Air Force Space Command requirements and some U.S. Space Command requirements. And it, it actually ended up giving us deployments around the world, uh, supporting the remote sites, the remote communications and, and, and tracking sites to help document the activities of Space Command, which I think before that were lackluster in the sense of, of having photographers show up at your door to uh, take pictures. Agreed. Or, or Good point. Video. Let's talk more about that, Jim, as far as sporting Space Command. So you, Air, Air Force Space Command um, included, uh, yes, the satellite stuff, um, but also the missiles um, that were up in uh, the northern tier. And um, we would visit all of those bases and provide them audiovisual support. Yeah, for the, especially for their inspections. When the Inspector General would, would go in to test them and, and – check their operations and, and how they were performing their uh, wartime duties, we would send uh, uh, video and, and still photographers 
to travel with them and document the And a lieutenant, I got to go as well sometimes on those. <laughs> the mandatory lieutenant. <laughs> you, you fortunately had a good crew of people to take you along and keep you out of trouble. <laughs> Mostly. <laughs> You know, and, and, and another thing about having the missiles, uh, Vandenberg, we were part of the Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty that got inspected by the uh, Russians. Oh, right. And so we also supported that. I was on the uh, start team, arrival team, um, where I had to, to go into a room with all the Russians and, and document the, their, their arrival on the base. And then they would go out and, and spend three or four days um, looking through the, the missile sites to make sure we weren't hiding anything. Dare I say anything that they were also spending a lot of time at the BX. <laughs> and a barber too. Yeah, buy, buying up yeah. American stuff and loading up the plane to take home with them. I remember being at uh, Arlington National Cemetery. That was one of the stops that they had actually made during their tour. And I actually had um, two generals, one Air Force and one Russian general pin A1C on me at the time, Airman First Class, which I thought was really cool because one, it was Arlington and two, uh, Russian and Air Force General pinning A1C on me. It was kind of yeah, cool. You, you, uh, you actually traveled with, cool. with the Russians as they went through the different sites where right. we stayed at Vandenberg. So, so you went TDY and temporary duty right. and, and traveled. I got, I got a chance to travel with them one time when they, they went down in a, a silo <coughs> on Vandenberg. And I remember um, the, you know, being the airman fly on the wall. Jim, you probably were the one that, that sent me out there, right? And I think... Well, you no know, one else wanted to do it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But I remember, you know, the spiel from the, the base commander about, you know, the technology in there. And I just remember being, I think this was back in the era of the Palm Pilot. Remember those? So I remember him drawing the uh, the parallels between there's more processing power in a prompt in a Palm Pilot than it takes to light one of these things off. <laughs> it was it was it was crazy. I was like, wow. Okay, I feel safe. You know. <laughs> so. And for folks who are not aware, we had missile silos at Vandenberg for testing purposes because every once in a yeah. while they would identify a random missile from you know. Minot or whatever base, and they would bring it out and then prove that we could launch it out to the to the ocean that just things were still working. And so, yeah, they could, uh, it was legit. And so the Russians would come come and take a look on that. So something else Fred uh, mentioned that, that I, I think is uh, really interesting too. As photographers, we were flies on the wall. We heard and saw a lot of things that we were never supposed to hear, never supposed to see. And and they're still, you know, in our minds today, but um, can't talk about them. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Not on You're uh... just back there with your camera, <laughs> you know, trying trying to trying to blend in with the wallpaper, right? <laughs> Turn around till she puts her clothes back on, that kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm not here, Colonel. I'm not here. <laughs> at least, at least nothing we're going to talk about on this podcast. <laughs> they all wanted video anyway. I got all the action. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. With his big shoulder-mounted bazooka camera, right? That was a oh, huge yeah. camera. I think it was like 40 pounds with batteries. <laughs> oh, yeah. 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 Those things are huge. 
Well, I think <laughs> when we talked about going out and um, like going out to Colorado or uh, the bases there and for the IG inspection and putting these things together, it was basically because our equipment was designed to pack into boxes and deploy. And so basically we used the same sort of setup in a just non-threat environment usually Estes, Colorado, not so threatening. Like the number of times we went out there for the, uh, was it single airman week or something like that? Singles or a, conference. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Singles, oh yeah. That was a good one. That was, right, we'll, come back, <laughs> we'll come back to that. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but let's talk about the mobility. So that, that, that was a big mission. In fact, I got to be the officer that was responsible for the mobility program. And I got to say, it was probably one of my favorite things in the air force where we figured out how we could be doing our day job. But again, be able to mobilize if they needed two still photographers or a full team of eight folks or, or Bruce, what you guys had as far as that mobile processing lab that yeah. I'm not sure that there was anywhere else. I think they, we had the air forces only one of those. Is that we're right the pilot not? unit? Yeah. There's two other units we are trying to stand up, but uh, by time they really started, well, vans were built. I don't remember what other two bases were supposed to get them, but by the time that all came to fruition, Digital had already taken over because what we were essentially doing was shooting slides, processing on site in these vans, and then turning right around and having to scan them on a codex scanner. So it was that, that, that transitional period. So it was pretty cool moving those things around is, you know, a great team took a lot of teamwork to move them. Uh, took a lot of expertise that doesn't really exist in the air force anymore because the vans that we used were repurposed from Vietnam era reconnaissance vans that were used for tactical reconnaissance. So you had like me and maybe a handful of guys that knew how to actually put the mobilizers on them, put the wheels on them, set them up, tear them down. That's kind of cool, but uh, it was right at the threshold. Uh, I think we only deployed them. I think we went to Italy during Desert Storm, and we went. You and I drug them up to uh, someplace in Northern California. Uh, some place north of Paso Rebels for an uh, exercise. That's uh, right. We did do the exercise out there with them. Yeah, yeah. just when, when they were doing some sort of, when we, when we actually did deploy under simulated conditions rather than just right. Right, up to, right up to the edge of pretending we were getting on a plane, we actually went up north that one time. We actually took them up to Nova Scotia for a Canadian exercise. We were up there for 10 days, and it worked like it's supposed to. I mean, we fit the whole shebang on one C-130 to include the team. Got them up to Nova Scotia, set it up, ran out of it, you know, process scanned, and we took an MR sat. Um, that that worked great, and uh, <laughs> we were able to get a, <laughs> a FTP line locally, and uh, we were able to get our stuff to J Triple C. But yeah, that MR sat, man, what a boat anchor, you know. I know, I but, know. Yeah. Well, let's let's talk more about. So we're we're really in this period of time, at least while I'm there and then the years before and after that, we are at this sort of cusp of things going digital. And so on some areas we're at the very, I, well, I think in everything we're at the very cutting edge, but a lot of it's sort of hit and miss. And these Inmarsats are probably a good example of where <laughs> we had this box, basically the size of a tent, right? Like the, you know, it's a, like an eight man tent or something in this like large yeah. container and you basically open it up and then yeah. you would set up the, the dish and find the satellite so you could transmit the photos back to where ever they needed to go. You guys know Ooh, more yeah. about it than I did other than dragging that box. In, in, in theory. <laughs> for the for the yeah. technically implied, I think it was 2,400 baud at the time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it was, it was, it would take a, oh, just an endless amount of time to transmit 
just one image. And, and we had a budget to use the NMR sets. Those things were really expensive. And I can yeah. remember sitting in the office, nobody wanted to use it to transmit images, but you had to show use on the NMR set when you deployed. And I can remember sitting in the office and getting a phone call from Jack's Valley in Colorado Springs, and it was Fred trying to run up the minutes on his NMR set to show that he was using it. And he just wanted to chat for a while. <laughs> yeah, that thing was magical. I mean, once you got it going, I mean, in retrospect, it was like, yeah, it was ancient, you know, oh, but at, at the, the time, time, it was cutting edge. It was like, look at this, you're going from film, right? Okay, film and you shoot it and then you got to mail it and process all that stuff to, to be on the edge with those digital, remember the Kodak DCS 420s, I think it was, those big yeah. Nikon with the hard drive? 420s, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah going from that to somewhere else from the field was magic, you know, just being able to do that. And now, we, of course, we do it with our phones, but, you know, <laughs> it was crazy back then. <laughs> it was. That's true. Now, on, the, on the still side of the house, digital was, was pretty amazing for us. We had the, the big, heavy, 100-pound Kodak printer and, and, and uh, the, digital, the DCS cameras and things. But the thing that most sticks in my mind was once we had a real world incident. I can't remember what it was, but they wanted images at Air Force Base Command in Colorado Springs right away. And we actually set up four laptops with images on them and, and went to landlines and using Timbuktu, which was a peer-to-peer a, a -peer networking protocol, we were able to, with four laptops, start transmitting images into Colorado Springs. And they were pretty amazed by that, just that the technology. We were always, we were always held in really high esteem by the, by the, uh, the upper ranks because to us, what we were doing was, was the equivalent of, of middle-aged magic, being able to get pictures across the globe <laughs> so quickly. So you hear the demeanor in Jim's voice? It's, it's like, you know, it, it, very calm, collected, and matter of fact. That's how he was back then, too. Because like, <laughs> it, it was a pain in the ass to set that Inmar set up and find the satellites. It was like literally like threading a needle. And he'd be like, yeah, yeah, go set it up real quick. Yeah, you can do it. They let me know when it's done. You know? It sounded easy when he said it. I should be able to get this done. And. <laughs> So I'm having I'm having flashbacks, yeah. Jim. <laughs> yeah. What do you mean you're having problems? Yeah. What are you inferior? Everybody God. knows where that satellite is out back. You know, we've been Bruce. We. You can always make a phone call, though. I'll tell you what, man. You might have been able to send an image for a while, but you can always get back to somebody on the phone. It's like, oh, we yeah. kind of got it working, but we got, well, we, we know where the satellites at. It pumping images, man. It took forever. Mm -hmm. God, slow. Al, you know, you had a lot of digital coming online with the Beta SP and the Avid systems, and, and that was all pretty, uh, pretty high-end technology there, being able to just have your images on a hard drive and plug them in, which I think those big boxes that were about a foot and a half long probably held two meg. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, but even still, the video files were large. I yeah. mean, it's not like it is today. You know, where a hard drive back then was maybe like 200 megabytes, you know, which is absolutely nothing now. You know, we're talking terabytes. Yeah. 
But those Avid machines were pretty cutting edge at the time, like being able to edit. Oh, yeah. I remember when I oh, went yeah. to Hollywood, it was like really rare. And then the time in between, like we had suites of them. You had, I mean, they, were, they would sit idle and they wouldn't sit idle in a, in a more cost effective environment, I guess you'd say. But the military bottom force and, and you guys were in yeah. video there, yeah. At the at the time, and so that was that was pretty cutting edge. What you guys were working on? What other stuff on the video side did you kind of see in that transition now? Uh, cameras. So, so basically, I mean, it was still analog, but going from high eight to beta SP. High eight was natively a poor choice of tape because it was going to fall apart regardless in playback or record. So you were lucky if you got to use and record a high eight tape one time without dropout. If you try to degauss it and reuse it again, forget it. Because uh, the tape just would fall apart. <clears throat> Beta SP was a little more solid, didn't have as much air, was able to be reused. So it made a little more financial sense. But unfortunately, the Air Force spent so much money on high eight equipment. They wanted you to use high eight because yeah. that's what they bought, you know? It's unfortunate. Yeah, we so not everybody the, got the app, uh, opportunity to use Beta SP like we had at Vandenberg. We had the Beta SP for the high-end stuff, but then you're right. It wasn't part of our deployment package. When we deployed, it was the, the high cameras and equipment that we were putting into those green boxes on that pallet. Hey, I, I have a confession to make on this technology end of things, too. When I first got to Vandenberg, um, along with trying to get people deployed to Haiti and figure out where my household goods were because they were stuck in Texas. And, and I was having to uh, kind of dig through uniforms looking for something clean. Um, they came down and they asked me to do a new mission statement for the photojournalism department, which I was running at the time. So I, I wrote up, you know, the, the standard nomenclature, you know, yeah, we, we support the worldwide activities of, of Air Force Base Command and document this and, and do this and do that and and at the very end i put we were also responsible for research and development for air force space command on digital imaging for still photography and all of a sudden my budget skyrocketed um <laughs> nobody told me to put that in there it was just like a throwaway line but but i'm sure it got me a thousands and thousands of dollars uh, because at one point we had bought a new uh to give you the time frame it was a mac 8100 we put 200 mega RAM in it. It cost us $10,000 for that 200 mega RAM. And I was walking around wanting to know if anybody wanted to trade a car for the sand. <laughs> but but that, that brought us a lot of money um, and a lot of equipment um, because we were suddenly, we were the guys who were suddenly responsible for testing evaluation of still imaging equipment. <laughs> When you told that story earlier about the folks at uh, headquarters getting images and being really interested in that and getting them in quick, it does remind me some, um, of some of the incident in Vandenberg, and I'm not sure exactly who was involved in it, but we were, I think, for the first time um, sending live video images back to the uh, folks in the little command room. And I remember very specifically where there was some incident, I don't know if it was a fire or or, or what the incident was, but then our guys would deploy. We had a camera that was sending the imagery back to where the base commander and the, the staff group was. 
But those, but it was very interesting that they now had the illusion that they understood what was on the ground more than they actually did. That was my first concern about that, where they kept telling the ground commander, you know, do this or do that, or let me see this, when they didn't really have a 360 perspective of what was going on. And I had some concern about having that live imagery, but not the full picture available to folks who are making decisions and that they, you could misunderstand what's going on the ground if you're only looking through the camera lens. Do you guys remember that? Do you guys remember well, when we that, that technology? That was, that was more of the magic. We, we put uh, microwave, was it the microwave on the- uh, It was microwave. The, it, we had, it, we, we we had it in the aircraft too. We would put it on the helicopters mm -hmm. and we had yeah. some of the, some of the, uh, the units that were used in instrumentation for the space launch, the long lens stuff, we also had them on those. And, and we were able to, to broadcast right into the, the command post for the wing commander and the 12th Air Force commander, right? We were 12th Air Force? 14th Air Force. 14th Air Force, yeah. And that was more the magic where they were just, do you guys need some more money? Can you keep this 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 train going? <laughs> but you no, know, no, dude, Jim, you have no idea, dude. That's still, still a pain in a lot of people's ass. I, when I got out of the Air Force, I worked for the Missile Defense Agency, and uh, they're part, partly on their visual communication side. Anyway, we had pad cameras on all our LS. Well, through this and that technology, we were able to beam it to the command post and the emergency operations center. So that suddenly overrode everything. They wanted to see the pad cameras, and could we could we pivot one off the asset, which is why the cameras were there in the first place? Can you bring it up and can you pivot it at 90 degrees north because there's a wildfire and the commander in the command post wants to see it? So to this day, that magic uh, has a legacy. They want to sit there and visually see what's going on. But, but like, but like uh, Rob was saying, they, they kind of missed the big picture. Like you said, they're, they're focused so much on that one element uh, the, uh, the, yeah, look at us. We're seeing live video of the fire and that cool. And in reality, they're not really talking to the, who's on the ground. Who's, uh, who's there. I am. Well, that, I am that's, kind that's of same side tracking. That, that same technology, you know, we had a, a, a $40,000 AMPRO projector that we picked up. I don't know if y'all remember that. Oh yeah. But oh but yeah, it was, it was in the conference room and the first LLV launch from slick six, the space launch complex six, was a unique launch and where in the past everybody would go out to watch the launch which is a space launch um, from south vandenberg we went to the conference room for the first time because we had it it piped in and we got to watch it fail um <laughs> but we even the, even, the folks, even the folks who were using the technology didn't step outside to watch we were actually tracking it with range cameras watching it around the conference room table drinking coffee and and yeah it just started yeah. tumbling and it was like it looked like it was going to recover and then everybody started laughing it's like no they never recover <laughs> <laughs> those things are pretty fragile really people don't realize but but those uh but you'll go around those launch systems are pretty flimsy you know in the space of the technology <laughs> the other story i re i remember and this is to admit uh, my lack of prescience on this front that we had um, a couple of folks assigned every week to re be on call in case there was an incident of some kind on the base again whether it's a fire or you know something we needed 
still in video guys right away. And at the time, cell phones were just coming out and being more available. And they're like, oh, we need to have those cell phones. And I remember yeah. talking to the team and saying, do you want someone to be able to reach you all the time? Like be able to call you without thinking about what they need to know? We do not want to be carrying these things around, you know, all the time. People are just going to abuse them. And it's just going to, of course, you know, that's the world we live in now without uh, oh, uh, yeah. simpler times. Yeah, well, I, I remember during a major fire on the base, up on the north end of the base, and people need to understand, Vandenberg's 98,000 acres, and it covers 37 miles of coastline, and there was a fire up on the north base, and there, it was being documented. Was that from was, a launch that went bad? Uh, I don't think so, but I, I just remember that I was stuck on a hill up on north base with a, a radio, I could I could receive signals from the squadron ranch. I think their call sign was ranch. I could receive signals from them, and then I would transmit it to the people on the north base. I was the go between, and I was out there on that hill for like twelve hours. And all I did was, yeah, I heard you, and then I would repeat it so that the folks up on the north base. Could... <laughs> that might have been uh, from a failed launch because one of the very first jobs I did for the Air Force was a launch and it had actually failed. I didn't Excited. know what a failure uh, launch looked like. So it, I remember it was myself and John Noon. We were on the ground and um, I'm videotaping and he's like, oh man, we got to get out of here. You know, the, the launch went bad and <clears throat> they blew up the, the rocket or the missile, whatever it was. I think it was a missile. I remember that. And um, I'm thinking, oh man, this is my very first gig, and I'm like all into it. Oh, this is so cool. Big old chunks of metal coming down, fire all around us. And I'm just thinking, this is part of the gig, you know? This is awesome. And John's like, no, we got to get out of here. And I'm like, hold on. I'm getting it all, you know? Um, so by the time we packed everything, we're surrounded in fire. We're in this, I don't know, it was a Chevy uh, GOV at the time, the government vehicle. We drove through flames, make it back to base just to turn around and say, because at that time they were having people, um, airmen, go back, grab a shovel and create fire breaks uh, to keep it from spreading. So that was my first Air Force gig <laughs> at Vandenberg Air Force Base. We do not remember. Do you remember? I think that was that. Uh, that was a Titan that that blew was up it? if i remember which is the largest space launch vehicle right you guys remember that yeah. thing was just huge out of slick six uh like jim was talking about and if it's the one i'm thinking about i was in the air on that one you know how they send up the still yeah. photographer and the videographer yeah. with the doors open on the uh1 shooting around the pad so i'm in the air and i remember you know you're up there forever and of course you have to launch in the middle of the night you know so you're just like crap okay just launch it already right so we're sitting there and then the thing lights off and it's like Jim said, it's supposed to go out over the Pacific downrange. This thing veers and starts heading towards Santa Maria. <laughs> so, so, boom, goes off like a, the biggest Roman candle you've ever seen. Just and all these pieces come back down to the base. I remember we were three miles away from that thing in the air in a basically a bucket of aircraft fuel with the doors open. And I remember this giant flash of light. And the one thing you don't want to hear when you're in that situation with one thing strapping you to the bottom of the aircraft is your young lieutenant pilots saying, holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> and veering the aircraft in the opposite direction. 
and then we landed out where we were on the ground like you guys because everything of course at that after that happened became classified you got to go take pictures of you know jack rabbits trying to get out of the way burned up you know <laughs> so, so we're doing all that yeah that was crazy that was a that was a crazy you know terrifying but exciting adventure never got to see any of the film of course because it, it went away but you know it was exciting well i remember fred's moment of at last for the last atlas i was on south vandenberg it was my first uh, space launch that i worked and i was south of of the pad where the atlas was being launched it was the last of its class and and it kept getting delayed kept getting delayed and fine and i think there was some anxiety about let's just get this thing into space so i was south of it which it meant it was going out over our head and i'm standing around it's foggy as heck um, can't see 20 feet in front of y'all just about and they do the launch because apparently the pad is clear enough that the range cameras can can track it but we can't see anything from where we're at except a glow through the fog and i watched all the all the old guys the guys with knowledge and everything they slowly start moving toward the tracking mounts with the big cameras on them that can't see anything because the tracking mounts provide protection if the thing blows up and pieces come raining down they're going to roll under they're going to lay on the ground and roll underneath the tracking mounts and and get out of the way of whatever might come down because we were blind to what was going on and uh there was a big lesson that day it reminds me jim that yeah the guys who had these huge mounts that had high speed film on them and all the photography to get these launches so they could study when something went wrong down to the split second these guys were um, uh, not uniformed guys. They were guys who that was their job and had been doing it in some cases for 20 or dare I say even 30 years, right? Like those guys were an institution on yes. their own. There were, you guys I remember was, Shanahan? Right, I mean, I, was, that guy, he came to Vandenberg in 1962. The year I was born, he came there as a two strike. And he was my <laughs> boss over in Mopic. I mean, when, talk about institution. When I was an airman back in 1974, I was stationed at Vandenberg. It was my first assignment. And just to date myself, color imagery was pretty new to think, was pretty new as a mass media. <laughs> um, and uh, <laughs> some of those guys were there in 1994 when I returned to Vandenberg. Some of those same people were still working in, in, in the, we called it the instrumentation branch, I believe, with, with the range tracking cameras. And something, something a lot of people don't know is we had tracking cameras as far south as San Diego. And those lenses were over half a million dollars. They were huge. They, they actually put them in the back of pickup trucks to transport them. Just the lens. Um, I mean, when you see a, when, when you have a tracking camera on a, on a space launch going for a polar orbit, and there's a camera recording the separation of the shroud, releasing like, a, like a, a, an alligator's mouth opening, and it peels away from the, from the shroud peels away from the, the spacecraft. And you can see the spacecraft sitting on the, on the booster. It's a pretty amazing thing. The, the things we got to see and, and experience were just unfathomable to most people. I liked um, yeah. the initial launch when the door opens and then it actually shoots out. That's something that you don't see every day. That was, to me, like the, the best part of the launch was seeing the door slide back and, and the missile take off. Yeah. 
we got to see those things. Most people don't get to ever get to see that. We would see the, the process from the aircraft or the spacecraft or the rocket being delivered to the base and crawling to the, you know, to, to the pad all the way through to the assembly in the clean room of the payload, the satellite. So we have to document all that. And then, you know, the erection of the thing and then the launch and all that stuff. So yeah, we got to see it from literally soup to nuts all the way through, even in disasters like we we're talking about before. Yeah. Yeah. Received through launch. And a lot of that came, I mean, we, you guys mentioned the anomaly. We've all been there for one or two, but what happens after the anomaly is that photograph that you took at two o'clock in the morning showing the rocket scientists ensuring that those cannon plugs are put together because if it wasn't put together properly, then that may have been the cause of the anomaly. And the only proof that he did or did not do it, he or she, is that photograph that Fred or Jim or Bruce or Al, who any of us got. And if it weren't for that imagery, I mean, you screw it up. I mean, you know, that a zillion dollar satellite just gets blown up on the pad and only proof that it was hooked up right is your imagery. So uh, at the time, it seems like a pain in the ass. It's like a Saturday night. You really don't want to be there. And you stand around in those clean suits waiting and waiting and waiting for them to be like, okay, come here. And you get five images of the cannon plug or a board or whatever. And then you go back to lean it against a wall in a clean suit, you know, for another five hours. And time, it seems so, I don't know, it's just like a waste of time. But in reality, it is just critical. Something that the, the folks that are not tuned into the actual receipt through launch and, and everything may not understand is when they identify why something blew up, why something had an anomaly um, and didn't make it to orbit is that there's sensors all through the launch system, all through the launch vehicle. And they're actually able to, to read that telemetry and see where the telemetry starts ending first, where the telemetry dies. That takes them to the area that the uh, system failed. If a valve goes bad, those sensors are the first thing to die. And we can find the actual images of where that started to go down because you've That's been documented it. the whole yeah. time. Because yeah, it's all been documented from, as it says, a receipt through launch. You guys, I want to talk about another uh, major event that was uh, all hands on deck. And that is that Vandenberg would host the annual Space Command competition called Guardian Challenge, where all those different units would send their best teams and they would compete for a week or two. I can't remember how long that they were actually with us. And then we had under McAllister, who was running our audiovisual side, he came up from uh, from Norton, I think, or whatever, uh, from the another unit, and basically turned it into this three-day Academy Award-style show where we were doing video. You had to do an intro video for everything, and then we were doing a live feed of the actual event, and there was a camera feed for inside the room. And I just, I just remember it was this massive, massive production that – everybody was involved in or uh, am I blowing it out? Was it smaller to you guys in your memory, but it was huge Major production. Nobody it slept. Was gigantic. We we're sleeping under our desks. <laughs> yeah. And, and or at the hangar. Supposed to leave, and I, I reined him in and I went, I sent a letter to his new boss. Fred was leaving the <clears throat> and I sent a letter to his new boss. Do you remember this, Fred? I do. Now that you've mentioned it, I remember <laughs> it that. Was, yeah. It was be, be comfortable in the fact that Fred is still coming your way. We're sorry we had to keep him for three days. So have a beer and know you made the right decision. <laughs> 
That was classic. That was classic. Yeah. Yeah. That, what, what a time. Yeah. That, those, those kinds of exercises were, like I was saying before, the clocks go away. Right. And it's just, yes, you stay there, you stay there and maybe you could squeeze in some time to sleep, uh, you know, and at the time it's just, this is a Royal pain, right? It's like, it's man, a mission. I yeah, I want to go home. I want to go do this. But then, you know, you understand that, Hey, everybody's there. So it's not that bad, you know, and you're all having a good time. And, you know, for the most part, joking around, everybody's tired, but in retrospect, it was memories that can't be replaced. But while you're in it, much like other things, sucked right because you're like i don't want to do this what you know it's going on forever i'm tired i'm hungry as i recall fred had been hired by the san jose mercury news and i remember him needling us because he had a t1 line right directly into his lap right directly into his <laughs> desk and they were they were they were giving him anything he wanted they were paving his way and i go back to the digital imaging and the way that we were in the forefront of technology and that allowed Fred to go to these people and say, I know way more than you do and yes. give me the job. And they did. But McAllister, our boss at the time, he wanted to hold Fred over because Fred was a wonderful artistic Photoshop person. And he was doing posters, which we would put them up every day and the participants would steal them off the walls. And so Fred would have to be there to make more. And that was mainly his job. The goal was for our side of the house, the still side of the house, we were doing a nine projector slideshow into a 36 by 12 foot screen. We were, we were using nine projectors to get the images up. And Fred was concerned because his bosses, he was supposed to be leaving. He, he was his end of service and we held him over for three or four days. And so I wrote his boss a letter and said, be assured you've made a really good decision. Don't be worried about Fred. He's coming your way. Have a beer, relax, and make sure that you, and understand that you've made a really good decision in hiring. And you know, that was street cred. That was street cred, because when I got there, they're like, whoa, this guy is valuable. The military wanted to hang on to him and, and scrape every last bit of his talent out before we get him. That's amazing. Welcome, you know, so thank you. You increased my, my value. <laughs> Hey, That's too funny. Slideshow was a synchronized slideshow, right? With multiple projectors. Yeah, nine projectors, um, three three projectors across the screen to get one image up, and that's what got me out of photojournal out of the photojournalism where I was chief of photojournalism. And the boss saw what I did, not only in in doing the show with the help of Chris Nor, but I also uh, managed to have the equipment show up on time because we were ordering everything during while we're under stress working literally 24 hours a day taking naps under our desk and and i'm ordering equipment and telling the boss no problem it's going to be here and this is before tracking before the web where you could check things and i've got these new projectors coming in i've got new programming equipment coming in and we put together the slideshow at the last minute and it was amazing it was it was a really incredible show secretary defense was there i believe there was a lot i'm reminded of editing so each award had to have its own little video for the intro before the award was announced and i remember sitting on one of those avids editing these things editing these things trying to turn around i still had there were like 25 30 there was a lot of little award segments i remember editing there was still a ton to go but then McAllister, god bless him he wanted to have this video this video of the vandenberg base where all these folks were on this cliffside and it was shot from a helicopter of all these people 
And he was like, everybody stop what you're doing and get out there on that cliff. And every yeah. single person I'll think of, because for whatever reason, I don't know, people wanted to do something else on their Saturday that weren't part of the Cobb squadron, but it's like everyone out there. He made a lot of friends that day. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I, I was a part of that cluster. Yeah. He made a lot of buddies. I think Al Gerloff was the guy that shot it. Yeah. He was a real photographer on that. Yeah, <laughs> I think he shot it because I remember he had this slipped a helicopter left because uh, it couldn't shoot it straight on. So he had to shoot out the right door. But so he'd bring it up, hover it and slide it, you know, slide it uh, left to get that z- panning zoom pullout shot. Yeah, I remember that. Oh, yeah. I don't think I was out actually on the cliff because I think I ignored it and uh, not ignored it, but I was still typing and McAuser came through and no, no, it was before it happened. He was just, he was doing that final roundup and he came through and he was like, uh, uh, Lieutenant Skidmore, you need to be out there. And I like, I think I broke down. I think I was like, it can't do it all. <laughs> I got to get this done. And it was like, all right, you stay, you stay, do that. And so, yeah, I missed the little adventure out on the cliff. I have I to give uh, major videos. McAllister a lot of thanks though. Cause he kind of, from a video perspective, really pushed the bar of, of uh, creativity and quality, put a lot of Big trust time. in us. Yeah. Um, we didn't have that type of experience that he had and what he had envisioned, but he believed in us and he gave us the opportunity to do those things, um, which is kind of hard uh, coming from the AV field that we were in because you don't get a lot of opportunity to be creative like that, uh, to have free reign of how you want things to come together. Sometimes it's you capturing it as it happens. With him, it was, let's create it. Let's make it happen. So I have to give him a lot of thanks for, for that because he, he, made, he, he had a small part in, in what I am today and actually raising the bar, always shooting for the best, trying to be better than what we had before. You're only as good as the last thing you produced. So if what you produced was crap last week, you better raise the bar. If it was good last week, it better be better this week. You know, I, I have to give him thanks for that. I agree. 100%. I agree. I, I agree as well. I agree. Big time. He, he really did uh, raise our game to another level when, you know, he came to Vandenberg and, and what he did with the unit. 100%. It wasn't that he had higher standards. It was that he wanted motivation. We already had the standards. He just wanted us to really put our hearts into it. And he had, a, and he had vision. And, he, and I think – he shared the idea that you could have vision, to your point, Al, like a vision for what this can be, not just a matter of capturing and working with that, but rather, again, exactly your point, Adam, to, to make it into something more. You know, he's, he's kind of like a good example of the, the Achilles heel of, uh, of the Air Force, uh, the military in general. McAllister should have been in a different position. He, I, I, I second everything Al said and more so. But there should have been a position created for him, like commanding PD or senior PD or something, and got all that commander bullshit off his desk so he could gone out there. Can you imagine what he could have accomplished had he didn't have get strapped with, like, endorsing EPRs or making sure decks were going through? <laughs> and you see the same thing in the air crew world. This guy could be a killer pilot, but you know what? You're a major now, and we're going to start grooming you for a desk. You know, forget about killing Johnny Bad Guy. Now we want you to learn how to be a an exec officer and all this other bullshit. Yeah, McAllister was fantastic. You know, he should have had his own little world and just let all of us orbit around him. That's my take on it. They the commander thing hamstringed him. Uh, he could have done so much more. And he, that's, I mean, I, I, I don't even know how to put it. Anyone you know what I'm talking about? Yep. Uh, no, I, I agree. No idea what you're talking about. 
<laughs> I mean, I don't know. We can't rewrite the Air Force today, but, you know. Can you repeat that? Yeah, <laughs> write it down. Well, you know what? With, uh, with uh, Major McAllister leading, I think we could have easily, when the time came where the Air Force wanted to create their own uh, commercials, that's probably something that we could have led from the inside. Mm. Big time. We had the talent. Big time. We had the resources. Uh, the experience, and especially knowing what it was like, because that's who we were. That's what we did. I think for the folks on the voice side, this was this gentleman who elevated us. He, he oh yeah, got the best out of us. He he got the extra effort to uh, to show our talents and our abilities. Yeah. So I just want to add one thing. One of the best feelings I got was watching the audience react to the video that we had produced. When it creates a moment where the audience is just like taken back, breathless, or, you know, they, you could put a lump in someone's throat with your visuals, you've done something good. You've had an opportunity to make a difference in that person's life, and you accomplished it. And that was something I, that he brought to the table. I agree. I remember one of the, one of the best moments of my life was we were doing a guardian challenge. And I, again, I was on the slideshow side of things with the big multimedia tw nine projectors. And I found a piece of music. I won't go into it here, but he walked out of the room, shaking his head saying, why didn't I find something like that? Because <laughs> he, had, he had pushed me to the point that I had to find the music. And, and when I found it, it was like, he's going to love this. He is going to love this. And, and he did. He was, he was blown away by the music that I found for the show. Lessons, guys, after all these years. What, what part of this experience stayed with you? I know Fred now, you guys went on to do other things. Who wants to start? Well, Bruce, Jim, maybe you guys start because you retired at Vandenberg, you said, both of you. It was your last assignment. But Yeah. 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 I retired and then uh, got a job working for, uh, at Vandenberg for the Missile Defense Agency. Uh, primarily, it's kind of like a security analyst, but Missile Defense Agency had one photographer, a guy named Henry Norton. Great guy, good shooter. He was based out of Huntsville, Alabama. So he was having to travel all over the place for milestones in, in uh, science and technology and missile defense and also gripping grins. So I said, you know, dude, why bother coming to Vandenberg? I'm already here. So that's how the whole in-house visual communication role started. And I was with those guys for seven years, and I uh, had a blast. Um, but I had planned on relocating to South Dakota, and uh, commuting from California to South Dakota is not the easiest thing to do. And one day I said, "I'm out of here." So here I sit. I don't really do anything, <laughs> anything visual anymore, other than shooting friends and what have you. Well, for me, what I what I picked up from Vandenberg was the digital imaging. Um, technology ended up giving me a uh, high level of knowledge that I was able to to take into a job after I left the Air Force and and I worked for one of the top imaging labs in the United States as they're as running their scanning department I don't want to say it, it was a uh, next level type work Hewlett Packard was coming to us with equipment and just giving it to us other companies were doing the same thing, but they wanted us to, to show what their equipment 
could provide to the rest of the country. And, and I'm eternally grateful to that. So Fred, we already got a preview on yours. Uh, you were heading off to the news right after Vandenberg. Where'd that take you? Yeah, yeah, I would say, you know, uh, to, to answer your initial question, you know, the I credit the Air Force and, and Vandenberg in particular with, you know, like Al said, making me a lot of what I am today in terms of my my love of the creative and storytelling and, you know, just this, the, the leeway that we had on that base, like Jim was saying to, you know, I was creating posters and learning Photoshop. We're in Photoshop version one, I think it was, or two back then no layers no channels nothing you know so we're you know and and doing great stuff with what we had it was it was just sort of an awesome pressure of create excellent work under sometimes impossible time constraints you know basic physics is pressure makes diamonds right so in repetition you know makes skill so we're just doing that stuff over and over again under excruciating deadlines with the with the expectation of excellence and i carry that on to what i do almost every day you know much to some people's chagrin right so you <laughs> no, know I agree. And then, yeah and then the you know so that piece of it and then going on to you know i left i left the san jose mercury news i went over there as a web designer uh, ultimately became the guy that was in charge of all their AV stuff. We were, I was there during when the time when Apple released the, um, the iMac, the Bondi blue iMacs and iMovie. So we <laughs> replaced all of the edit bays that they had with little iMacs with iMovie <laughs> back then. So it was an interesting sort of transitional time. So I credit the air force was kind of like making me a blade in terms of, the the pursuit of excellence i guess i'd say and then i went on to apple after that and that sharpened the blade in terms of attention to detail let's say <laughs> so yeah i don't i don't think i'd be a very different person than i am today had it not been you know meeting all you guys and spending time in vandenberg and you know shooting those space launches and just you know all the fun it it was it was an amazing time one thing I would put out there for people that, um, you know, that think about the military and think about the Air Force and you think, or, or just the military in general, I have sort of a negative connotation of, yeah, I don't want to go in there. You're going to, you know, all this other stuff. And this is my own personal opinion. I think that my experience with being in a situation with people from all backgrounds, all ethnicities, all whatever, and in a situation where failure is not an option, and it's all about the quality of the work product and, you know, location independent. I was in Japan. I was at, you know, Vandenberg, et cetera. You know, being in those situations, I think, makes you a better person and makes you a, a more well-rounded person versus being siloed in your town and, you know, not being able to, you know, identify and, and have a conversation with other people. So, yeah, I, it was it was fantastic. I wouldn't I wouldn't trade that that experience for anything. Well put. Yeah. I finished, uh, I finished my career at uh, Nellis Air Force Base in Las Vegas. And one of the things that I told myself before I got out was I wanted to make myself as marketable as possible. I wanted to know every and all aspects of AV, whether it be shooting, editing, uh, photography, graphic design, storytelling, producing, directing, technical writer, teleprompter, you name it, whatever. I wanted to to master it all so that when I stepped out, I gave myself the best opportunity that I could. So I have to give the Air Force many thanks for that because 
they did afford me that opportunity to learn all those things. In addition to that, working with other, other units, other branches of service, working with the Army, working with the Navy, working with the Marine Corps in, in, in different exercises, working with Navy SEALs. Uh, you, you, you learn something from each experience. I, I, I think that I, I would like to think that I took a little bit from each experience to kind of help mold who I am today, to work with people of all races, all genders. You come together, like Fred was saying, create a quality product. The Air Force provided that opportunity for me. I don't know if I could have had that same experience anywhere else. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Well, I'll bring it back around uh, to the film stuff. Is uh, folks, I was at Vandenberg three years, and then I went on to DC for two years. Assignments there will be a topic of another podcast someday, I'm sure. But uh, after that, got out and moved to LA. And and what was really clear is that um, the military and the film industry they use the same organizational theory. And I've talked about this on the podcast before, but for folks who are just joining us and then comparing them, where you have a very complicated organizational structure, but it needs to respond very quickly to change. Like all the things we were talking about today, something blows up or something different happens or you need something to do. If you want your organization to respond quickly, you gotta push the expertise to the bottom. So the guy who's doing the job, he knows his job. He knows how the change affects his job. And if he understands how he or she interacts with other people in the organization, then the parts can self adjust. So that the entire organization can pivot quickly to address something else. And that's the kind of lessons that made me an AD. That's why I ended up where I was. So don't, didn't regret a day in, didn't regret a day out either, I got to admit. It's a, certainly a mixed bag being in uniform, but everybody's got to find that, that sweet spot of where you gain from it. And then, you know, when you can carry that on to other things. Well, I agree. Yeah. I don't regret a day. It was awesome. You'll forever be LT in my book. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah that's see, the Pentagon people call me Captain S. See, so I'm just clocking up the nicknames. <laughs> can I tell a story about you real quick? Let Al, let Al tell a story, then you can bring it back around. Uh, the only other thing I was going to say is, uh, and this is outside of visual, but while at Vandenberg, I got to experience going to survival school up in uh, Spokane, Washington for three weeks. That's the kind of training that you take with you for the rest of your life. It's an experience that at the time you're probably thinking, why did I ever <laughs> agree to do this? But when it's all said and done, you build a confidence within yourself that if for whatever reason I end up in a forest or wherever with no food, no water, I can make things happen. I can keep myself alive, you know. Uh, I know which bugs to eat. Exactly. Which bugs to eat, which ones to stay away from. And um, how much better if you've got a video camera with you as well, and you can make a whole documentary. Exactly. No, but I mean, again, this is part of the whole Air Force experience. You know, it's not something that I would have experienced outside of the Air Force. Mike, those were good times. <laughs> Yeah, it was. The best time I ever had. I never want to do again. Not jealous that I didn't do that myself. My favorite Skidmore story <laughs> was, <laughs> he was he was working a mobility project. We had, we had these, these platforms that 
that you had to put all your equipment on and slide them onto an airplane, be able to slide them onto an airplane so that they could be transported anywhere in the world. And I walk out into the hangar, and now I do want to caution, he was a young lieutenant, not an old lieutenant, <laughs> and, and, and kind of feeling his way along. And he had about 20 people out in this, this hangar floor where they kept all the instrumentation cameras for the space launches and things. And only two of them were working, loading equipment onto the pallets um, so that they could be transported to a forward operating location. And I, I observed for a little bit and I thought, this is the moment to tell the lieutenant what an enlisted person is all about. And I walked out and I took control of the situation, got all his pallets loaded with everybody involved rather than just the two people that were loading the pallets and, and had a wonderful time in my mind while I kept telling him, you're doing a fine job, sir. <laughs> yeah, well, any smart lieutenant knows where to find his uh, NCO expertise. And maybe not out the gate, but uh, it becomes apparent when you And that, that's it. It's, it. I think it's just uh, learning as you go along and, and feeling your way along. And you were good. You were really good to learning what we were all about. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean, learning what, what we were all about as a group and a cohesive unit and, and helping to foster that. Well, I appreciate that. I mean, it was, a, it was I, I always thought I was very lucky to get to work in audiovisual to go into the military. Like that was, that even that that job existed, I decided late in college that I wanted to work in this creative space. And then uh, the military gave me an opportunity to really cut my teeth with it and learning from all you guys. I am really glad we got to revisit this stuff today, guys. It was fun. Thanks for having us. Good Thanks, guys. Yeah, definitely. Listeners, thanks for indulging me, but that was really a lot of fun. Your feedback is always welcome. You can send email comments to skid, S-K-I-D, at belowtheline1word.biz. That's B-I-Z. Please rate us wherever you get your podcast. It helps us reach new listeners. And new listeners, most of our material is evergreen, so feel free to peruse our past seasons. Maybe another episode will catch your eye. If you're on Facebook, you can find photos and other behind-the-scenes materials at Podcast Below the Line. And finally, you can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram. It's at Pod Below the Line. Thanks to Curtis Five for our music and John Wan for our logo. The logo is available on t-shirts, mugs, and stickers at redbubble.com. Last bit of news, I'm surprised to report that I've joined another production to manage their COVID protocols, and I suspect that that's going to keep me busy through the end of the year. Most likely, this will be the last podcast of Season 6. Below the line, we'll be back with something new again in 2021. Thanks again for listening. Be safe. Home.